This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Severance, the show on Apple TV. I'll kick us off. Severance was just the thing I needed, a show about office jobs that takes seriously how incredibly grim they are. The show stars Adam Scott, the friendly guy from Parks and Recreation. Parks was one of those feel-good shows on network television. It followed a municipal parks department, portraying American local politics in a deeply saccharine way. In the 2000s, we had a variety of shows like that, shows that made white-collar work out to be a good time. The American version of The Office was perhaps the most infamous. Initially positioning itself as a critique of office life, it slowly but surely drifted into an homage to the very thing it was created ostensibly to skewer. The trouble with shows about work is that they invariably develop the office relationships too much. If the people you care about most in this world work alongside you, the office experience starts to seem meaningful, if only because you're in it together. Companies go to great lengths to create teams of people who like each other and regard one another as family, because once human beings are brothers in arms, they'll go over the top together, even if they know they are unlikely to make it out alive. This show subverts these tropes with an intriguing conceit. In Severance, the workers have chips installed in their brains. While they're at work, they do not remember their home lives. And while they are outside of work, they do not remember their work lives. This creates two different people living in the same body. The person inside the workplace, the innie, and the person outside the workplace, the outie. The innies do all the work, and the outies have all the fun. Of course, it's not quite that simple. There are some people who get the severance procedure for less exploitative reasons. Adam Scott's character, Mark, gets the severance procedure done because his wife is dead. He imagines that his innie might be free from the grief and depression that grips him outside the workplace. He can't know whether his innie is happy, though, because he has no memory of what goes on at work. The company, Lumen, is infamously secretive. Audi Mark has no idea what any Mark actually does. As it turns out, working for Lumen isn't a picnic. The employees can't quit. Every time an innie tries to escape the office, their Audi brings them back. The innies try communicating with their Audis, but Lumen makes that very difficult. On those rare occasions when an innie does manage to get in touch with an Audi, the Audis invariably refuse to resign. In this way, the employees have, quite literally, been turned against themselves. The Audis need the innies to keep working to pay the bills, and because the Audis don't experience the work themselves, they are able to rationalize away the suffering of the innies. The innies are therefore ultimately united not by their love of the office, but by the need to rebel. Of course, rebellion is not easy. Lumen keeps the innies in line with both hard and soft power. Act up and you're taken to the break room, a dark, isolated space where wayward innies are made to repeat a repentant refrain. Of course, if you behave, there are a variety of rewards for a job well done. These rewards are petty and would only impress someone who has never been outside an office building. At one stage, one of the characters gets a five-minute dance party. You get to choose the genre of the song and a musical accessory with which to play along. Our winner chooses Defiant Jazz and the Maracas. There's a guy in the office named Dylan who really gets a kick out of these little perks. But when he finds out that his Audi has a son he knows nothing about, the perks start to feel trivial. For those who want a deeper meaning, Lumen offers its own theology. The founder of the company, Kier, is treated as a stand-in for God. His successors are akin to prophets. All the rules and regulations governing the workplace ostensibly come from the handbook, and the handbook is treated as a religious text. Christopher Walken plays the guy who designs new editions of the handbook. His role in putting the scripture together makes him at once more reverent and less. He is concerned with Kier's will, but he notices significant changes in the words that are used to convey that will to employees. He buys into the theology, but he's no literalist. John Turturro plays an employee who thinks about things more literally until he meets Christopher Walken's character and learns to embrace a larger view of Kier. 
By the end of the first season, he's a believer in the severance equivalent of revolution theology. There are other players. Britt Lauer plays Helly, a new employee who is rebellious to her core. She tries to get the better of her Audi by attempting suicide. Then there are some people in charge of discipline. They haven't undergone the severance procedure, but they do seem to be true believers in Kier's religion. They drink the Kool-Aid they serve others, even if their brains remain whole. As I watched, I had a few thoughts. It is clear that we are exploiting ourselves when there are two versions of us, and only one of those two does the work. How similar is this, however, to ordinary unsevered life? Ordinarily, when a single person takes a job, that person instrumentalizes some period of life for the sake of some other period. It sounds like a good arrangement when you are at home indulging your hobbies, but when you are at work, it can feel like a very bad deal. Nevertheless, most people who don't like their jobs stay in them for the sake of this other person they get to be in the evenings and on weekends. And if an ordinary person has a spouse or children, these loved ones give them additional reasons to subject themselves to the workplace, even if it's quite unpleasant. As employers well know, single people are much more likely to leave than those who have been anchored in place by a mortgage or a school system. I think the way we feel about this ordinary experience depends on whether we think there is such a thing as the self. If we are the same person across time, then when we instrumentalize some part of our time, we are still the ones who ultimately benefit from that decision. If, however, there is not a continuous self, but a procession of selves, then the person in the present is being made to serve a future person, a person who is distinct and separate. If we view it that way, that would potentially allow us to say that when we instrumentalize our time, we are letting ourselves be exploited by our future selves in some sense, albeit in a less visceral sense than the sense in which this occurs in severance. If this is true, perhaps the midlife crisis is a kind of revolt, staged by the person we are at work against the person we are at home, staged by the present against the future. No matter how much we paper over unpleasantness at work with hobbies, family, and other such things, the worker inside us will, if treated too unkindly for too long, seek to sabotage the home life for which he perpetually toils. I also have another stray thought about workplace co-ops, in which the traditional workplace hierarchy is done away with in favor of workplace democracy. In co-ops, the employer and the employee become one and the same. This is often pitched as a kind of reintegration, a bringing together of roles wrongfully separated. It's sold as the end of antagonism between the employer and the employee. But it has always seemed to me that co-ops achieve this external appearance of unity by turning the worker owners against themselves. The employee who is also the employer internalizes the authority of the employer. It is no longer something the employee can confront as external coercion. It appears in the employee's mind as the employee's own will. To resist the demands of the employer appears to be resisting oneself and one's own goals, and this makes resistance seem not just impossible, but a kind of madness. A cooperatively run business is still a business competing in the market. It must still be managed efficiently if it is to survive. The co-ops that survive are the ones where the worker, part of the worker-owner, submits most readily to the owner part. This can be achieved not just by inducing the worker-owner to make war upon himself, but by inducing all the worker-owners to appear to one another as employers rather than employees. When we confront our co-workers as our bosses, we cannot feel solidarity with them. We are made to work even harder lest the many faces of capital who work alongside us think us too undisciplined. In the co-op, then, the boss lives both in the co-worker and in the worker's own mind. The freedom the worker ostensibly gains by being free of the external boss is canceled by the worker's continuing subordination to capital through these new forms of subservience. By robbing the worker of an other to confront about poor working conditions, the worker is left with only themselves and the democratic system to blame. And since nothing is ever democracy's fault in this modern world of ours, the worker is made to turn inward to seek the solution to every symptom in themselves. Nobody's putting chips in our brains, and there are lots of ways to turn us against ourselves. Severance is a beautiful show, 
and I recommend it to all who have the tolerance for its dark themes. It is not a show that makes us glad we don't live in a dystopia, and it is not a show that makes us thankful that we have such good friends at work. It is a show that makes us question whether we are deceiving ourselves into wasting our lives. Some will find that hard to take, but I suspect if severance really makes you feel bad, it might just be because there's someone inside you who would like to have a word. All right, let's hear what Helen has to say. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I, um, agree about these solutions to capitalism, which are perhaps not the kind of like honeyed path to utopia that we think that they're going to be, because actually the antagonisms are operating in a kind of different way. And sometimes the solution is just more mystification, in fact, oftentimes, because we haven't quite grasped what we're dealing with in the present. It's interesting. So I I confess I was not able to watch the full show because I have been too busy, but I did watch the first episode. So I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, in general terms about sometimes what happens, and I think, Ben, you, you suggested that this wasn't the case with this show, but sometimes what happens with these sort of grand anti-cat like overtly anti-capitalist um products and shows is that they actually operate to um to mystify or to um make us feel grateful that in the present we aren't experiencing something as bad as this but what i thought was interesting just about this um this idea of severance is this line between um the public and the private in terms of work um obviously today, lots of people, especially the laptop class, works from home. I've definitely found it impossible. I used to be able to be like, right, I'm going to work eight hours in a day or whatever. But these days, it's impossible. You get WhatsApp messages, you get all these things. And um, it's sort of completely blurring the lines between, you know, the, the working day and the private life. In one way, we could be like, well, severance, that isn't that tempting. At least, you know, you go in and you separate. And there is this sort of push. And I think it's maybe representative of um, the fact that unions, oh, I mean, obviously union, unions are like this fantastic tool against capitalism. And it's, it's a tragedy that so many people have been proletarianized to the point where they don't have part in a supply chain. So they can't withdraw their labor to protest. And sometimes people who are in the position to withdraw their labor, for example, university lecturers, you know, this is, this is actually, and this is not to say that they shouldn't be joining unions. They absolutely should, you know, everybody should have the right to do this, but it's almost a privilege in in our order of things to be able to, um, to join a union. And much of the exploitation um, under capitalism isn't, you know, part of this sort of like something that can be grandly depicted in a media product in a very clear way that this is, you know, a capitalist uh, issue, but rather, you know, are to do with um, infinite scrolling on on Instagram and creating, like there's a true, true, true blurring. So it's almost even worse than <laughs> than what uh, Severance is depicting as a dystopian um you know, issue in terms of this this division between work life and private life. But at the same time, it's like, do we really want to blur the lines between the public and the private in terms of work? So for instance, things like, as you were talking about with co-ops that can sometimes serve to mystify solidarity, like, do we want to do away with, um, you know, bitching at the water cooler and, you know, bring parts of ourselves, our actual um, subjective identities into the workplace. So, you know, these are things that can actually create solidarity and create human relationships and create a sort of bulwark against the market system. So I guess the point I just want to make is it's, it's interesting. This is this is picking a very specific part of um, of capitalism and is, is showing that maybe this notion of separating the self from the workplace is not really all it's cracked up to be. But this idea of where work starts and where work stops is very Com- complex is does fall into contradiction and almost the level of exploitation that we're experiencing now is less to do with defined roles in jobs and that's partly I think why there has been such a um, a rush towards um, self categorization because of this sort of failure of the role of roles um, in terms of work um, but yeah that, that actually 
being being a human person within the workplace is a way to um as i say like emphasize solidarity and to lessen alienation even though a solution might be to attempt to um medicate alienation by withdrawing yourself um it is yeah i think i think uh in terms of you know these sort of grand anti-capitalist narratives that we sometimes see in media products, you know, one very obvious one that we haven't talked about that much on this show, maybe we did a little bit when it came out, was the, um, hung, uh, not Hunger Games, although Hunger Games is a little bit like this, um, Squid Games. Um, but actually, you know, and depicting these sort of like very obvious ways in which people are exploited. But I think the tragedy today is that precisely um, the we don't know where we are exploited. And it would be actually kind of handy for things to be a bit clearer sometimes. Um, one thing I also wanted to say about uh, the way that tech is depicted sometimes in media products is quite interesting. I think that um, you often hear this idea about AI and the, the horror of this coming horror of man and machine in these knowing machines and how these are going to, you know, this sort of technology is going to be really dystopian. And I actually think it's much more ordinary than this. I think machines are binary. Therefore, we don't really have to worry so much about being overtaken by these horrendous machines and that exploitation exists through um not through a, a weaponized machine that will do the dirty, like we kind of psychically outsource, we imagine the outsourcing of exploitation through this machine, but it's more to do with how we as divided subjects are li libidinally invested in an exploitative system. Um, and I think that's much more dangerous and much more important for us to know, understand human subjectivity in, as it relates to the market rather than machines who don't have subjectivity. So I don't think, the, and Dwayne Munro has written, he's um a theorist on um, tech who worked for many years in tech has, has talked a lot about this in a much more interesting way than I could possibly do. Um, but how this sort of um, future dystopian fetish of uh, machines, our robot overlords, is a sort of way to distract from the much more ordinary, although complex in its own way, because I do think understanding capitalism has to do with uh, understanding human subjectivity, which is divided and um, machines aren't divided, um, except in the way that they uh, have a human, a human hand in their creation. But, you know, the things like the, the um, I think an example of this is Instagram ads. You know, we, 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 we speak, our phone listens to us and we're suggested magically like a, an ad and we think, oh shit, this, this tech, if, if at this point it already can read my mind or listen to my conversation, where's it going to go? And I actually think not very far. And the example of, for instance, um, the kinds of ads that you get, they never quite, I remember at one point um, when I, the, the my computer, this was a while ago, when I used to do running, picked up on the fact that I was into running and it was always recommending me this website, Running Singles. And at the time I was not looking for a boyfriend and also kind of felt that runners made the worst possible boyfriends. So, so they, they, um, um, they, uh, well, that's another story. But they, they, it's a really kind of base and not very intelligent, um, you know, um, machine, these sort of robotic or AI or whatever. And I think that they serve to mystify, um, the fantasies about them serve to mystify uh, the horrors, the very, the less kind of grand horrors in the present. One thing that I kind of thought about with the aesthetic, this ties into this kind of tech point is it's interesting how um some of these like future dystopian uh shows and movies use like an 80s aesthetic in terms of um com com like the computational devices i don't know if this is to do with like the history of cinema and hearkening back to things like blade runner that is a really important um you know uh, like a canonical piece in this uh genre and sort of like get a bit of the uh uh, the glory of Blade Runner and the sort of, um, what would you call it, uh, the prestige of Blade Runner in this sort of like history of cinema. But also I think there's something to do with this kind of um, aesthetic that 
It's the same with film. You know, I, I do think aesthetic obviously is so important when you're creating when you're creating a piece of work in terms of what is being um, said by the by the work and the use of film, for instance, you know, the kind of the grain, this adds a sort of mystique, this adds a sort of aesthetic sheen that gets us to in, relate and invest in the product in a certain way and to make it think it, that it's more mysterious and magical than it is but this is a very important thing but you know when when one makes like documentaries and you use archive materials and the sort of video footage and film footage and it's a bit worn and aged and there's a bit of this kind of um there's a distance in relation um, from the audience to the object there's an aestheticization because of this sort of temporal distance and this um, you know, this kind of in-baked experience of loss that you um, experience when watching this kind of product, almost like a lost Eden. Like the nostalgic factor is like um, Eden becomes mystical only insofar as it's lost and the breast becomes mystical only insofar as you have to stop breastfeeding. So, so there is this kind of um, way in which these films use this aesthetic, aesthetic, I think, to kind of mystify and to make magical um tech but actually you know the present is a more boring i don't even know if i'd use the word dystopia but it's a more boring reality than than what i think um the fantasy of the horrors of a dystopian tech future lead us to believe yeah das boxes they are creepy let's hear what nina has to say about severance Yes, yeah, so, sorry, I'm, uh, I'm back in Wiltshire, uh, so people are coming in and out and answering the phone and so on. Um, I'd just like to wish everyone a, a happy solstice. Uh, it is the winter solstice today, or rather this evening, at around 9.47 or 48 in the UK, well, in the Northern Hemisphere, but UK time. Uh, yes, very exciting. It's the beginning of summer, technically speaking, if you think about it. <laughs> um, although we probably have some more uh, cold weather before that. Um, anyway, so yes, yeah, so I chose Severance um, off the back of a tweet that I'd written uh, about <laughs> about Sam Bankman-Fried um, <laughs> and effective altruism, uh, about which I've been <laughs> much preoccupied, although less, less so this week, which is good. My obsession seems to have dimmed somewhat, but I, I, I tweeted something... Uh, about uh, machinic thinking, utilitarian thinking, and uh, how this, you know, fails to understand things like suffering and poetry and, and is always kind of doomed to fail, uh, kind of aesthetic critique of utilitarianism, of, of which effective altruism is obviously a, a version of. Um, and somebody tweeted at me, uh, who's a science fiction writer named Richard K. Morgan, um, he said he basically mentioned severance and and said something like, "Oh wow, you know, like severance is the solution, or you know, proposes a solution to the uh, to the the problem of poetry, or or something like this, or or is an effective altruist idea, or something like this." And I thought, "Oh, that sounds very interesting." And I realised that Patricia Arquette is also in it, and she's uh, obviously a fantastic uh, actress as she is uh, in this uh, series. Uh, and so I decided to watch it, and I like Benjamin and like Helen, I I, I agree very much with both of what you're uh, saying, although I have something to say about the sort of technology and the crushing of decades um, in response to Helen, but I uh, very much agree with, uh, you know, the things that uh, Benjamin was saying uh, in relation to the question of what we value and the relationship between our, you know, exploited time and free time. Um, I also... Uh, watch this series thinking very much about the unconscious and uh, the, the 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 question of of almost like blackout, what we forget, um, you know, the the way in which we are severed psychoanalytically as well um, from from parts of ourselves. You know, we we know as are unknown to ourselves, as Nietzsche famously says in his critique of uh, the idea, the fantasy of an, a, a transparent epistemology, uh, in his critique of Kant and the Enlightenment. Um, so there is this kind of you know, I think very, very clever, very sort of um, provocative uh, sort of theory, not only of, of labor, but also of the kind of self divided selves, um, to use R.D. Lang's phrase, uh, that we that we all are uh, and which parts of our, our lives, if you like, um, count um, and, and how do they count and, and to what end, uh, to what telos, uh, what are we trying to forget? And Nietzsche also, of course, talks about active forgetting as uh, a positive uh, 
uh, I suppose we would say like a skill or a practice uh, that one has to forget. <laughs> you can't remember uh, everything because uh, you will be weighed down uh, by the weight of of guilt and and you know the past and and so on. Uh, and he proposes instead of kind of lightness of of touch. But it's very obvious that sometimes uh, forms of trauma are very difficult for us to deal with, and sometimes we might run away from them like the the main character in this um in this series and i do think it's 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 very interesting that he was in parks and recs um precisely for the reasons that benjamin outlined and i think the um the other cultural reference point that came to mind as I was watching this very beautiful uh, series was, uh, in a very different vein, was Mike Judge's Office Space, which from 1999, which is a, it, which is a dark comedy. It's a completely different sort of genre, but uh, I I would say very much has a deep, profound critique of 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 labour under capitalism at its core. It doesn't do this Parks and Recs thing where it kind of ultimately redeems the social ability or the you know the nice aspects of work you know the fact that we like our colleagues or whatever all of those things might be true but indeed they they serve as a sometimes as an ideological uh function right so that we don't think about what's really going on i thought it was a very uh brave um series in this precisely for the reason that helen identified which is to say we're we're I think probably now more used, especially in the middle class West, to thinking of the blurring of the boundary between private and public, work and leisure. You know, we we often, you know, in the way that Helen described, um, fail to distinguish or differentiate between these things, right? Especially if we are members of the laptop class or the cultural class or whatever, PMC, whatever you want to say. Um, and it's a kind of source of endless complaint, in fact, that we are unable to um, disentangle um, our work and, and other persona in a, in a sense I was talking about this idea a long time ago in, in when I wrote One Dimensional Woman and I had this idea of like the walking CV. Like, what does it mean to be, <laughs> if you like, in the world, but being kind of being embodied as your own career? Because I kept sort of encountering the way people would talk about themselves uh, as if they were sort of workers all the time, even when they weren't working. And then I had this idea of this sort of perambulating CV that people were just kind of doing this, um, you know, and I, and I don't mean this in a kind of moralistic way. It was more just, you know, as a, as a sort of symptom of what it took actually to to get a job to succeed you know to be constantly if you like on show so this this uh show severance doesn't do that it it's it, it it in a way highlights i think that it takes to the extreme the nine to five the idea of the split the total split right between the the work life and the and the other life right the innie and the outie uh, and all of the things that benjamin uh mentioned so it it harks back in in some ways precisely to an earlier image of work yet at the same time the real life personae of the characters also live in something like a worker's village so so for example in um the Bourneville village right which is a very famous workers village uh, from the late 19th century it's set up by quakers who worked for cadbury the very famous chocolate uh, manufacturers who who had this kind of almost like holistic idea of the workers health and well-being and so they had these these very actually quite interesting very nice workers villages which still exist um i think I don't know where Bourneville is. I can't remember. Somewhere in the Midlands, I think. Um, I visited there a long time ago. Um, and and you have a similar model in Severance. The the workers are, if you like, in a kind of slightly depopulated, uh, just as the office itself has lots of empty spaces as if they're going to kind of build. It's very unclear what the model for development is. Um, and they live unknowingly with the fellow workers, although some of the characters who are in charge do know about the private lives of others. And I think one of the genius aspects of uh, Patricia Arquette's character, she plays uh, a, a character called Harmony Cobell, who is a kind of manager. She's fully signed up to the kind of Kier ideology, which is a kind of strange version of uh, Marxism and self-help. And it's very imagistically communistic, um, very productivist uh, kind of fantasy. So that's one aspect. You have you know, the cult of work in the kind of 19th century uh, way 
But she also plays a very maternal figure in the outside world. So she she flits uh, unbelievably well, I think, between this kind of incredibly harsh, domineering kind of uh, uh, work um, persona who, who, who nevertheless has her own issues with her bosses um, and a kind of um, a sort of... Uh, sort of eccentric but harmless and slightly maternal figure on the outside and then she does this uh, very well this transition I think um, which again raises a kind of psychoanalytic question or question of character question of masks like who are we when we're at work you know do we have a work persona I think one of the the reasons I, I left academia after 13 years was like I, I couldn't sort of <laughs> pretend to, to sort of be the sort of person who wanted to go to meetings for example um, I could no longer sort of just do the things that you were supposed to do as part of your job, you know, even though everyone knows they're pointless and, and horrible, um, you know, which, which, so it sort of starts to fall apart. Like you can't be these two separate people. You, you, you know, you, you become kind of deinstitutionalized. I think, you know, maybe this question of crisis, midlife crisis that Benjamin was talking about, um, which I think a lot of people go through, you know, you're a sort of crisis of value. You know, what am I doing? Why am I spending my time doing this thing that I don't like and is making me unwell and, you know, actually even physically manifesting symptoms in a sort of neurotic way? Um, you know, and, and so all of these, you know, work is a deep uh deep question you know what are we doing with our time who's it for um and so i thought uh severance really dealt with these questions extremely well and from an aesthetic point of view it's it's very the offices themselves are almost like a bathroom they're kind of hyper hygienic uh very blank spaces in some ways although precisely as helen um uh, noted the technology has this kind of fetishistic early computer era thing but what I think they were trying to do with the kind of conflation, the compressing of the decades. So some things are very 70s, like the the, the party food. Uh, some things were very like 60s. Some things were very 1890s. Some things were very, mid, you know, the Kia Marxism thing was very mid 19th century or, you know, uh, and then early 20th century. Was I supposed to... to in it almost like I don't know, maybe maybe postmodern, but but I I think more just conflationary way. Say, look, these are and the workers' villages. These are all work. <laughs> like like work, in a sense, is something that uh, is encompassed by all of these different iterations of it, right? And and in a sense, it's still the same question about what labour is, what about what exploitation is, about you know. So rather than see it as a kind of mystification, I saw it more as a kind of. Um, um, I, I suppose more like a, a synthesis, right? In a, in a sort of materialist sense of saying, you know, whatever the historical iteration of exploitative work is, it doesn't really matter because it's all the same thing, right? No matter how refined it gets or how many rewards you get. And, you know, one of the things about the rewards that the workers get for their ultimately extremely mysterious work, by the way, you know, they have a kind of, it's not clear whether they're, you know, they're moving symbols around on a computer. Like it looks like the most sort of pointless work, Um and sometimes the figures look bad or naughty or evil and they and they have to put them in a particular place in, in, in the computer, a very primitive looking computer system. You know, and of course, there's a very d deep, dark question about whether they're actually um, doing something uh, commanding or controlling something that's actually extremely murderous. And this is actually uh, in Arrested Development <laughs> in one of the later series, uh, the Buster character ends up uh, playing computer games, but it turns out he's actually doing drone strikes for the American government, right? And there is that kind of very, very menacing idea that bureaucracy, if you like, is a direct line to, to murder um, and, and, and uh, you know, very, very dark things which we, which we know it is right like the, the the link between bureaucracy and 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 terror or horror uh, is much closer uh, than than we think often um so yeah just to just to kind of conclude i i really uh i really enjoyed uh, watching severance i thought it was it was had this uh, very finely tuned balance of um i suppose kind of dystopia and and provocation um on this question of of work and i think i think the actors were extremely well cast and it was very very aesthetically um rich um and appealing um so again like uh like benjamin i i would uh, recommend um people um who are interested in this question of work and i think it also goes back to the conversation we were all having last week because we were talking about class and labor as uh, themes we often come back to and i i think 
think in 2023, it might be good to, you know, pursue these questions a bit more through these uh, cultural products and to try to get a handle because, you know, I, I would really like, for example, to watch a documentary or a film that dealt with the service economy, for example, in a very profound way, you know, that, that actually maybe looked at the, the labor that went on um, in the essential industries during lockdown and the separation and the division of class in terms of what people actually did or had to do you know um, and the role of kind of immigrant labor and all of these sort of questions which are very very pressing but it it you know culture in a way maybe takes a while to catch up but i think there must be um you know things that we can talk about and it would be good to get suggestions from the audience for uh, for next year um, particularly along these lines yeah and the question of the technology i think there's something menacing about task boxes. You know, those black screens you type the green text into and you don't really see images. Mm. The people who use task boxes grew up before computers. And so, of course, task boxes struck them as menacing and frightening looking. And then for those of us who are younger, we very quickly got past task boxes and onto windows and, and stuff that is light and colorful. And so we didn't spend a lot of time on DOS boxes and we never really developed warm feelings about them. I think as people, 80s technology is something that either came too late for you or too early for you to have warm feelings about it. There's no one who's really at home in front of one of those 80s, 90s computers. Mm. Something fundamentally estranged about them. And that works for the tone of this show. Mm. It's interesting, just about the storytelling, this is, I got this from episode one, but there is, there is this sort of style of storytelling, and it would be interesting to know, because you guys have watched it, whether this sort of gets resolved later in the episodes, but it's sort of, there's a lot of withholding, right, so, so obviously we get invested in a story, um, in de- that it, it hooks us by desire, so, so we are, we are drawn by lack, we want to find out what's going on, and, but, but it felt, I found it quite difficult to be engaged on a story level because it felt like it, things were being drawn out and this was an aesthetic choice as if this was the way in which we were going to be drawn by desire was just withholding information that they could have helped, could have given us rather than, you know, um, actually having some kind of more uh, riven narrative where things are happening and, you know, sort of a page turner effect. But I'm wondering, was this part of the... Um, the the kind of big question mark over the whole um, series and the whole story is and what is going. Do we ever find out what's what's going on at Lumen? What their jobs are? Spoiler I, alert! I mean, you don't have to say what they're doing, but I was kind of intrigued. I I I think I I don't know. I think I think one of the great things about Severance is precisely its um, allusive and symbolic and and puzzling and mysterious quality i mean it's a bit like westworld or at least what westworld was trying to do um originally <laughs> in this way which is to, and i think the the aesthetic um you know the opening scene with heli on the table uh you know y- you retroactively sort of find out things about who she is and, and and why she had the procedure and uh and so on but it's a very very striking striking uh, opening image where she's lying on a table and you know this very kind of uh uh, unclear what is what is happening. So I th- so I think there's a way of being drawn into severance, and it's also about the groundhog nature of the working day, right? So it's a very repetitive um, uh, visual uh, aesthetic in terms of when they're in the office and also outside, actually. Um, but it, they're also trying to map their own experience, right? They're trying to literally map the building of which they don't know. There is a character previously who who had mapped. Uh, the building um, in some ways and they're, they're all trying to find out actually what they're trying to do but like Groundhog Day there's the you know the actual film that there is a sense in which because of the the, the severing, the severing uh, you know they, they are constantly back in these two modes and it, they the whole question is how to integrate them so the series is is really a process about of integration to some degree about what it means to integrate the light and the dark, the red and the blue, the, you know, in self or out self. Um, but I, I don't, it, it is not resolved to it. None of these major questions, I would say, are particularly resolved. Um, there is, 
There are uh, questions of identity, who becomes who and who is really who in the outside uh, world, I suppose, that become clearer. Um, but I'm pretty sure they, they've uh, renewed it for season two. So <laughs> I, I think, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's like it's a very, it is a very drawn out process. And I think because it's so beautiful or if you enjoy the aesthetic uh, or this this synthetic aesthetic of, of, of work and workplaces and offices, um, that it's it partly operates not in a narrative way, but in a, a symbolic and formalist way uh, through repetition um, and through iconography. There's a very, very strange scene later on, for example, which has quasi-religious connotations where they, they come across a room with, with, uh, with, with some some baby goats uh there are others there are other rooms in the office where they have there are loads of plants there are you know it's it's a absolutely bizarre place lumen right and and i don't know it's filmed so uh i don't know so cleanly and so alluringly i i i found anyway yeah part of how it avoided the usual issues with workplace shows is to have this big mystery that the characters are trying to resolve for the purposes of, of liberating themselves and seeking uh, freedom from their miserable situation. Of course, by saving the office show, by pivoting into the mystery, you then have the possible issues that come up in the mystery shows. And I think Westworld and Lost are two different images of what can go wrong. With Westworld, to preserve the sense of mystery, you make it increasingly convoluted to the point where people become frustrated with it and stop caring. Uh, and then in the lost direction, you do try to tie it up, but you can't possibly tie it up in a way that's satisfying because you've spent so much time milking this thing that by the time that you do do the reveals, any reveal is anticlimactic. Uh, so I think Helen may be right to, to point out that these are the risks for the show going mm. forward. It's very easy to do a good first season of a mystery show or even a good first five seasons uh, but ending mystery shows is really hard and i think going forward there's a, a bigger risk that severance could jump the shark i think it did a very good job to start but this is a show where it's very hard to stick the landing so we'll yeah, have to see but we may get several good years out of it before mm -hmm. that happens because often the the ultimate you know the ultimate reveal of the mystery is that there's nothing there. So if you, because that's the nature of reality, you know, this is the Wizard of Oz kind of final moment. But like, if you, so if you, if you emphasize the nothingness from the start, then it leads the question is like, are we ultimately going to, ultimately going to discover God? You know, in, ter in terms of like, often there's a, a mystery that, that is very much, there seems to be a there, there, and then there isn't. I was just going to go back to the baby goats, by the way, because honestly, symbolically, psychoanalytically the baby goat appears all the time i i witness this in other people's like telling me their dreams all the time then recently on instagram um i was getting like on that wall feed that infinite scroll page baby goats all the time so <laughs> but obviously baby goats are kids right so um and <laughs> this th i think the reason why it comes up is because of this question of like um procreation and like um where where from whence one came and everything like that which is obviously very psychoanalytic mm. but um i was thinking about a dream a friend of mine had that he was telling me about that was like the most obvious dream like sometimes dreams take a while to to um when you're interpret interpreting you know they're not very literal and the, the symbology is quite um obscure but yeah the baby goat can often be but it is it's like I witness this all the time and it's like, it's like a sort of symptom of some kind of unconscious whatever. But um, yeah, psychoanalytic. I wonder if psychoanalysts hear about baby goats quite a lot. I don't know. Well, they're, they're also, uh, oh, sorry. They're also very um, biblical. I mean, they have a very religious, strong religious connotation. I mean, there's a line in Matthew about separating the sheep from the goats. Goats are often associated with a kind of, Quasi, uh, well, the sat satyr is a half man, half goat, or the one of those things is, um, and you know they have a slightly demonic quality. They have these strange rectangular uh, pupils. You know, people are sometimes quite, quite scared of goats. Actually, I would say um, they are a very interesting creature. But yeah, I mean, we associate the lamb with Jesus, and the lamb is obviously very, you know, associated with innocence and. And um, and so on the goat. So goat is somehow more knowing, uh, you know, and the, the the sort of horns of the sort of 
you know, de- demonic or devilish uh, aspect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I take the Lacanian point very strongly. Like the kid, you know, what is a baby goat? It's a kid. I mean, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good point. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, I wanted to say something just in response to Helen. I, f- I forgot to add this this point about the tech. Um, and you were talking about, you know, people's sort of, in a way, delusions about AI. Um, and I think it's very interesting. Like lately, we've had chat um, GPT. Uh, lots of people have been using this program to sort of generate scripts uh, based on a prompt. Um, and and chat GPT, as well as all of the visual AI, which is going on, which is now achieving quite quite uh, extraordinary results, we might say, in, on some level, raising all the, these questions about originality and style. Um, and chat GPT, I mean, sort of does work in inverted commas, although it often misrepresents uh, particular ideas. Uh, you know, theoretical ideas. Um, but it sort of produces text, which is readable, but it's a kind of like uh, low to one student essay. Like it's sort of <laughs> clear, but a bit midwit. And um, one of the interesting things I think it raises, though, even if you could use ChatGPT, and, and I see academics on Facebook already saying that students are using it to generate essays, which is obviously a problem because it escapes plagiarism technology because every prompt generates a new script. Um, but one of the things I think it pushes us to to reveal, just as the kind of critique of utilitarianism and machinic thinking does, is well, what 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 escapes that? Like, is it poetry? You know, I always use this word uh, to stand in. For for uh, all of those things which are not um, homogenous. You know, Georges Bataille has this concept of the heterogeneous um, in a, and, and Bataille, uh, uh, you know, really wants to describe these uh, moments or these um, disruptions that, that cannot be, if you like, uh, wrapped back in to, to a homogenous um, or machinic or processual um uh, thing and and you know Badji also has this idea of what cannot be seen from the standpoint of the state, where the state is everything that can be counted, you know. So there there's a, there are kind of other other things outside, and so I I think what AI in the visual and the textual sense might prompt us to do, as it were, <laughs> in our own machinic uh, creative generative capacity, is to perhaps become more idiosyncratic in the way that we think, speak, write and draw or make images um, precisely because there is there is going to be, there is already a flattening out of, of these processes, right? But it doesn't mean that we are therefore beholden to them. Like in the sense, you know, you're, Helen, you seem to be saying, oh, some people's fear is that we'll be taken over by robots, you know, like the iRobot idea, and although Asimov is actually very profound <laughs> in many ways. But, you know, the idea that AI is going to suddenly and, and immediately and abruptly kind of, you know, just destroy everything or something like that or you know the fear of technology let's say in its vulgar sense um but i think there's a kind of more dialectical way of thinking about it which is to also understand our own capacity to generate things um but in a in a a more intriguing way like what does it mean to remain human right Exactly. No, but this is the thing. we're talking about. Obviously, we use the word alienation in terms of work. Mm. But what makes humans sublime is our alienation. Psychoanalytically, is in our, our like first order alienation, and mm-hmm. almost the alienation of work. The sort of binary separation, like man becoming machine, in terms of the way we're exploited, is an alienation from alienation. Mm-hmm. And alienation is this um, exp- this divided consciousness that happens because of se- because of a second birth into language outside the womb that we are divided at the level of subjectivity. We have an unconscious. We are unali- we are alienated from ourselves. And that was, that's what allows us to, to think. That's what allows us to create. That's what allows us to develop, you know. Although, actually, we should do an episode on the, this notion of genius because I think this is like we're in the age of the genius. Everyone's a genius. But in a sense, humans are actually geniuses. But, um, but actually, this sort of like age of genius, everyone's a genius, is in capitalism what it does. And I think this is interesting in terms of what you were saying, Nina, about becoming more idiosyncratic. Is it... Um, it gives the impression, as in we we it's it's an individualist age, as in we are alienated from one one another and alienated from the alienation of ourselves. But we become more and more and more and more similar in our second order alienation. I was in a bookshop like a few years ago, and um, it was just so far. I just thought this really caps- encapsulated it. And there's this table um, of all these books that had been written 
you know, self-help books and they all had the word fuck or shit in it. And it was, as, you know, this was what it was being sold was like this sort of protest culture, this, you know, standing up, this I'm different. I'm not going to take the norm. You know, um, I'm kind of uh, outrageous and uncontainable. But there are about 50 titles with the word, like mm. the subtle art of not giving a fuck, how to not give a shit, you know, fuck this, fuck that. And it's just it, capitalism obviously sells this impression of individuality, but it's actually, a, it parses everything out into into similarity. So yeah, maybe this, this actual um, retreat into idiosync uh, idiosyncrasies might you know be antagonistic i don't know probably not nothing ever is is it <laughs> the market but no i just think it's interesting but it's interesting there's this one that goes around every christmas about um you know a, a bot reading a thousand hallmark movie scripts and it comes up with a, a, a you know a hallmark movie and it's it's really you know it's um it's the, the thing that's not there is the capacity for self-conscious thought and it, it, I mean, it seems like too good to be true as in like too perfect an AI script. So it's funny because, you know, humor is like the collision of two opposites. And so it's like this movie, but also there's this terminology that's just like ridiculous, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like there's somebody's working in a snow globe factory. It's so on the nose. But um, it does speak to the fact, the same with Google Translate, like Google, Google Translate mm -hmm. doesn't work. When I was a teacher and I taught French You'd always get, I say this all the time, but like you'd get boys who'd come with an essay that they'd written about how they'd played in une allumette de, f you know, like a, a match, football match, uh, like a match, or, you know, that there are, il y a 25 maisons d'embarquement à Monica. Like, um, there's like uh, 25 boarding, as in boarding a plane, you know, th these things, it's, mm. the, the, the language that humans are able to distinguish between, but machines aren't. Um, yeah, so I'm not worried. About although, although I may just note from a label point of view that Google Translate has been a disaster for genuine translators. It has. Um, you know, because and I lots work of as a people. Right. No well, exactly. So, I mean, you know, I think, I think we have to be clear that there is a sense sometimes in which the bad job is preferable at the level of cost to actually paying somebody to do I mean, this is true, the proper but job. I mean, it doesn't right? function. It, like, this, is a, this is a disaster, both. Yeah, both for, as I say, I'm part of this. Um, like I get work as a translator and I would say over the last 10 years there's been like a, a, a decimating times 10, a 10 times decimation. Um, there's just no work. But also it's, it is a travesty because obviously you have to communicate things correctly and things like, you know, you're labeling food or whatever, like there's, there's reasons for it to be like actually yeah. correct. But anyway. See, people think that the tech has to be good for it to ruin everything. And if it's bad, then it won't be widely adopted because it, it will be clear that it's not good. But the real issue is that the tech will be bad, but will still be widely adopted because the people who are making the decisions about whether to adopt the tech can't tell the difference because they don't have expertise about the thing that they're hiring the tech to do. That's why they would have to hire a person to do it. They couldn't do it themselves. And not only can they not do it themselves, they don't know the difference between a job well done and a job poorly done. So I think, you know, there's a little bit of a simulacra simulacrum problem going on here where the tech is doing a mockery of people doing a mockery of reality, you know, a, a deeply platonic mimesis kind of problem uh, where you are imitating people who themselves were not quite right, who themselves could not quite get it right. You know, if an AI is trying to learn human language, well, human language is already flawed. So an AI is already working from a flawed baseline. It can't access uh, form itself. It can only read the text that's been trained on in those texts because they're in words invariably miss elements of reality. So I think that AI is, is not going to be able to do a very good job of these things. But the issue is a low to one. And I do think that's about right. That's probably about the quality answer. For one, the AI doesn't read any secondary literature. <laughs> if it, it hasn't been, ChatGPT hasn't been trained on secondary texts. If you ask it about secondary authors, it won't know who those people are. And it will say they're obscure and that they've not contributed anything particularly important. 
right? So it only knows canon authors, and then it will advance the kind of Stanford Encyclopedia of Phil at best uh, kind of standard reading, and it is not capable of entertaining multiple different interpretations of a primary author. It will just say that this author <laughs> believed these things. If you look at their work, in, on the whole, this was what they said. Uh, and if you try to, to pick at it, it will make small concessions about its interpretation if you highlight specific things that it has read that don't quite fit with it. But after making those concessions, it will go, but still on the whole, the person believed this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. married to, to some of these. And its notion of appropriateness is a very, it's a very liberal notion. It will constantly say it doesn't have any personal biases or values of its own. But its notion of appropriate uh, that they've used to prevent it from saying things that offend people is heavily influenced by liberal ideology. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it will tend to interpret philosophers and theorists that it thinks are meant to be good people as if they're more liberal than they are. Gandhi is a particularly poignant example of this. The chat GPT wants to say that Gandhi's pro-economic growth, wants to say that Gandhi's pro-technology, because in its, according to its notion of appropriate, it would be inappropriate to be against, say, uh, the healthcare system or the medical profession. It would be against, uh, inappropriate to be against technology or against uh, economic growth, because these things are core human needs, according to ChatGPT. So yeah. it can't make sense of the fact that Gandhi doesn't share these values or doesn't agree about these things. It has to insist that Gandhi somehow did agree with these things, even though he uh, yeah. often contradicts it. There's an interesting uh, guy on Twitter called Brian Chow, who's a maths genius, um, but he, he tested the limits of, of ChatGPT in terms of its liberal values, right? So it, it, asked, <laughs> it asked it questions about certain taboo topics, let's say. <laughs> um, and he really kind of transgressed, he tried to transgress the limits, you know, like from a kind of experimental point of view, like not because he, he particularly wants to be mean, right? You know, he's just curious, right? It is, it is a very interesting question, you know, what, what the, what, what's, what is the limit of what a chat bot is allowed to say, right? And and that you, there have been various examples in the past where you've had AI bots that that have like quote unquote turned out to be racist, right? And it, and it's it's simply because people were like feeding it stuff, <laughs> and then it was repeating things mm -hmm. that you're sort of not allowed to say from the standpoint of liberal culture, or that you know are deemed to be taboo or transgress to you know overly transgressive, cancelable. Um, and it was very clear; it's made very clear in Brian's experiment and um, the limits, you know, the liberal bias. That there really was a kind of we can't talk about this. Like the chat, the chat GPT was basically saying, you know, this is not a topic that, you know, I feel comfortable discussing, even though I have no bias. Uh, you know, it was really funny. So clearly they'd oh, be, yeah. been programmed. I, I, got a, <laughs> I got a great example of one of these. I asked uh, chat GPT, which uh, basketball league has the more talented uh, you know, <laughs> and more capable basketball players, the WNBA or the NBA? Right. Uh, where's the depth of, of talent uh, stronger? The, the women's league or the men's league and chat gpt says that there may be a, a the, the women's league is slightly less depth of talent than the men's league because there's a smaller pool of players on which to draw it is which yeah. nice. slightly <laughs> because the number of players is you know there's just not as many people who play basketball who are women this is true which way. is a true fact but the, the gymnastics it did to try to concede that the level of basketball in the men's league is higher without acknowledging that this has anything to do with uh, the size of the male players or the fact that they can dunk, uh, I, I found that kind of But kind it, of it's, it's true, though, that like capitalism functions the logic of capitalism is like the logic of the low two one in a way, because, you know, we've, we talked about this example many times, like with Nina's dad's dental practice, listen to the archive. If you want to get the details on this, they're like, it has to fail to succeed. You know, yeah. you, if, 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 if there's a great solution, something that works, there's no product to sell to fill the hole in the problem, you know, going forward. So it has to fail. And this, by the way, I think is why, because this is where like part of where, um, the universe, so surplus, surplus youth enters the university because there aren't enough jobs and everything is so competitive that you have to get a first and not only a first, but a high first and become top of your year and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now we have, because actually capitalism functions at the level of the low two one, um, 
so many surplus geniuses. And I think this is, quote unquote, geniuses. And I really think that this is a phenomenon, and I've been talking about this a lot um, with friends recently, and it's quite funny, but also quite funny. Yeah, so we're at about an hour, so we're going to have to wrap up there. We're going to go over and do the B-side. So thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.